Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. I want to be spoken to tonight. Hallelujah, Brother Zach. I will first of all give glory to God tonight. He worked on me for a long time leading up to that National Youth Convention. <laughs> so I, I'm grateful for his patience. He radically changed my life, and he saved my soul. I give honor to Bishop, all his years being a pastor, and just all, his, all the work he's done in the ministry, and for driving us to that. I believe it was our first NYC so many years ago now. I give honor to Pastor. He's a great anointed man of God. I love to hear his preaching. I love to go through and listen to podcasts and just Hear them all over again. I give honor to Brother Mason, Brother and Sister Mason. They were my youth ministers growing up. And a lot of times they made sure we got to NYC and youth conventions and helped us get to church camp and Friday night youth and all the things that helped plant seeds and water them and helped me fall in love with God. I give honor to my parents who drug me to church <laughs> and, and helped me to fall in love with God. I give honor to all my Sunday school teachers because over the years they taught me about Jesus and his word. And I'm grateful to be part of this church in the apostolic faith. We believe in the power of the word and in the name of Jesus that saves us. I do not take this opportunity to minister tonight lightly. There have been many moments in my life that Jesus helped me make the right decision. And looking back, I see just how right the words of Brother Mason were when he told our youth group that our choices matter, the more we choose Jesus in every opportunity in our lives, the more we find him already there and willing to do a mighty great work. I've struggled greatly over the last few weeks putting this sermon together. I've questioned myself on it, whether I'm even worthy enough to stand behind here because devil just likes to remind you of all the times you mess up. I've been stressing over this, worried I was going to completely mess up what God wants me to say. But tonight, I stand here fully confident that this word is not dependent on how able I feel to deliver. It is God. It is my availability for him to speak through me. My talent is very little. But the anointing of God takes the least that we have and does the best work. So if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, I'm going to go to Acts chapter 4 and verse number 10. And when you're there, say amen. All right, got a few amens there. Right. Acts 4 and 10. Be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand before you whole. This evening, I'm going to minister just this. No other name. If you would put your Bibles down, lift up your hands, 
and pray with me. God, we love you, Lord. God, we thank you for your presence already in this place, God. And for how you moved, God, in my life to put me here, God, I give you the glory for it, God. God, thank you for every one of us that is here, God. And I pray that you would move, God, you would anoint my mind and my lips, God, to minister the word that you have given me. And I pray you anoint the ears of all that are listening, God, here tonight, and those that will hear our podcast, God. You would touch us all, God, do a mighty work, God. Help us to hear it. Help us to receive your word, that word that changes our life, God. Lord, I love you. And God, I give you glory and praise. In Jesus' name. You may be seated. J-E-S-U-S. Jesus. Never has there been a sweeter, more wonderful, more powerful, more life-changing, more soul-saving, or greater name to pass our lips. All of Christianity is focused around this one name. And many men and women and children have given their lives for it. But one may wonder, why is this name of any importance, of any value? In our country, for the most part, it's pretty well known. Most people know it belongs to the Son of God. And a lot of people have an idea that you end praying by saying, in Jesus' name, amen. But when you look around, you start to realize so few people know just how precious the name of Jesus is. And the most sad thing I have found is that the name is used vainly and is oftentimes very cliche, even in the church. I mean, in reality, a name is only as powerful or as impactful as the one to whom it belongs and your relationship with that person. To understand why Jesus is a name worth living and dying for, we should better understand just who Jesus is. It's a very, very worthwhile topic because we are either devoting our lives to the only thing that will ever matter or we are wasting our time. Those are really big odds. The more you think about it, if you're just wasting your time, you still lived a good life. You know, even if you die and you find out there's nothing. But if Jesus Christ truly is real, you don't want to waste. You don't want to just throw this word away or toss that name around casually. I'm no theologian. I don't have the entire Bible memorized. I'm not a historian that perfectly understands the culture of every time frame and nation covered in the Bible. But I do know there is power in the name of Jesus. And that is the only name by which we are saved. That name has changed every single thing about my life. And it continues to impact my life every single day. I'm not speaking from secondhand knowledge. I've been filled with the Holy Ghost. I pray every day. I study this word daily. And I strive to grow and be who God is calling me to be. I'm telling you from firsthand experience that Jesus is real and his word is true. So let's go ahead and take a look at who Jesus was and still is. It is greatly important to realize he's more than just some religious figure in old stories. He's more than just some Renaissance painting. And he was more than just a good man or prophet. Jesus was the manifested, manifested image and name of God Almighty. In short, he was God in the flesh. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. 
justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Colossians 1.15. Who is the image of the invisible God? The firstborn of every creature, speaking of Jesus. John chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. Philip, one of the disciples who knew Jesus very well, saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. Jesus said unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? 2 Corinthians 5 and 19. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Jesus had a dual nature. As a man, as the Son of God, he had a fleshly nature with limits and weakness, and he was able to be tempted just like any of us are. But as God, he had a divine nature and had all power and wisdom with no limits. Although his body was flesh, it was inhabited by the fullness of the Godhead, or the entirety of God. Many people would ask, how is God able to be two different people at one time? How can he be both the Father and the Son? Aren't those different persons? Well, it's the same way he is both the lion and the lamb. The same way he is both the first and the last. The same way he is the shepherd and the king. He never compromises who he is in any role that he fills. He is who he is, and that will never change. As God, he is the Father. As a man, he is the Son. And if he says that he is able to be both Father and Son and be both 100%, who am I to tell him that's impossible? His ways and his power and his wisdom is far greater than anything I will ever have. And yes, God is the Holy Spirit. That's not another person in the Godhead. There's not two or three or any number of gods or persons inside of one God. The Lord our God is one Lord. God is a spirit and the father of all things. And the fullness of who he is was made flesh and was the son. And the name given, the name that is the name of the father, son, and spirit is Jesus. We can look at it this way. And I know I'm, I'm saying Brother Mason a lot in this, so I hope he feels the love. But I know him in a few different ways. As Brother Mason, he is a minister, and he was my youth pastor growing up. He is a preacher and a worship leader and a great man of God. But I also know him as Jerry. He's my boss at work. At work, the role is completely different, and I approach him in a different manner than I do here at church. I also know that he is a husband. He's a son, a father, an employee, a teacher, a student. He has a lot of titles and a lot of roles. However, no matter where he is or what role he is performing, he is always Jerry Mason. One person in multiple roles and with one name, Jerry. It is the same with God. That's why the apostles baptized in the name of Jesus after Jesus said to baptize in the name, which is singular, of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The roles may be different between the titles. But there is one person and one name in the Godhead. And the fullness of the Godhead was in Christ Jesus bodily. For reference, you can go to Colossians 2, 6 through 12. 
we're never going to truly comprehend the fullness of God or all of his ways. Because great is the mystery of godliness. But we most definitely can come to know his love and his embrace. We certainly experience the outpouring of his spirit, the gifts and the fruit of his spirit. We experience his peace, even though it passes our understanding. We don't have to be able to completely understand everything about God to be able to understand his word and experience all of his promises. Now, looking at the fact that Jesus was indeed God manifested in the flesh, we can't forget that he was still just like us. He was a man, and he experienced everything we experience in life. Want some examples? For one, he was born. Matthew 1, 18 through 25 will tell you of when Jesus was born. And besides that he was being born of a virgin, it was pretty normal. Mary carried him for nine months, went through the pain and the joy of childbirth, and Jesus was a normal, weak newborn, ready to grow up and become a man someday. Two, he grew in wisdom as he aged. Okay, admittedly, a lot of people skip that, but <laughs> Jesus grew in wisdom. Luke 2 and 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Sometimes I wonder if Jesus is God in the flesh, how can he grow in wisdom? God already has all wisdom. But remember, the body, the son, was limited, even though God was not. God had to be fully man in order to be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And that includes being able to grow in wisdom and stature just like everybody else. And he did. He went from small, innocent, newborn baby to a toddler with meltdowns, the terrible twos and threes and however long that lasts. He grew up into a slightly older child, into a young adult, to eventually being an established Hebrew priest as a man. Three, as a man, he was tempted. Satan himself made sure Jesus faced temptation. Talk about feeling special. Whew. The very purpose of temptation is try to get someone to do something they already want to, even though they know it's wrong. <gasps> How could God want to do something bad when he's all good? Yes, he was God and he was good, but he was also a man with the full experience of being a man. And no man is without temptation, no matter who you are. So what tempted him? Well, there's one thing I at least definitely relate to, and I believe we all do. Food. <laughs> Satan went to Jesus at the tail end of his 40-day fast and tempted him to use his power as God to turn a stone into bread so he could eat. I'm about 99.9% .9 sure I would have failed even before the 40 days were over. And here was the temptation for Jesus to misuse his power as God in order to satisfy his flesh when he needed his flesh to be in submission to the spirit of God. We see that Jesus relates to the same fight we have every day, submitting our flesh to the will of God and keeping spiritual disciplines. And for me, that really brings Hebrews 4.15 into context. For we have not an high priest, which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In the same setting, we also see Jesus tempted to show the world how that his angels would always protect him. 
And he was also tempted with getting kingdoms and power. As God, all those things were already available to him at all times. But as a man, he needed to resist them so that he could fulfill the very purpose why he came. The temptations Jesus faced are not identical to the ones you or I face. But the equal ground for us is that we all, even Jesus, have been tempted to do the wrong thing. Four, Jesus had earthly parents. Joseph and Mary, they were his parents. They raised him. They taught him scripture and the sacrifices and everything Hebrew parents should teach their children. They fed him. They put him to sleep at night. Got him clothes. Made him and his brothers get along. And everything else that just comes with being part of a family. Five, he needed to fast and pray and study scripture. As a man, he had to have those spiritual disciplines and grow and deny his flesh. Six, he got hungry and tired. That sound relatable? Hungry, tired? He enjoyed sitting down to eat his mom's cooking. And he loved being able to lay down in bed at the end of a long day. Seven, he had a job. He was a carpenter underneath his father Joseph before he started his ministry. So Jesus knows what a long, hard day of work feels like. He knows when you got to put in the extra hours. He knows what it feels like when you got to work on your day off. Just like we do. He knows. He understands. Eight, he felt fear. He got afraid. I'm sure he had fears as a child, just like any kid does. But the biggest example we see in Scripture is when he was praying in the garden. He faced so much stress and fear. His blood capillaries burst. And the blood flowed out with his sweat. I take comfort knowing that Jesus understands perfectly how pressure and fear and anxiety will affect us. He knows. He does understand. Nine, he had friends and he had enemies. It doesn't take long at all while reading the Gospels to find both. Ten, he got angry and he got frustrated. Even when you are God in the flesh, some people just have a way of getting under your skin and on every nerve you've got. (laughs) And this most certainly did happen to Jesus, just like it does to us. But he never sinned in his anger. Eleven, he had to make his flesh submit to the will of God. I've said that a few times, but that is the biggest, hardest obstacle in this life. Making your flesh, the desire to do wrong, submit to the desire and will of God. Even the Son of God had to face that. Twelve, he died. Yeah, he did rise again the third day, but he knows what it's like to face death. He knows what it's like to have friends die. Every single man and woman will face death. In the Old Testament, you're only going to see a very small handful of exceptions. But the fact that Jesus submitted himself even to die really makes it hit home that he really did face everything we face. Now, we know Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And that he was a man, he faced everything just like we do. But there were many things he did that show us he was more than just another man living on this earth. He was unparalleled wisdom. Even as a 12-year-old boy, he baffled priests and scholars with his wisdom and understanding. Even King Solomon, the wisest man in history, could not match the wisdom of Jesus. Solomon had God-given wisdom, but Jesus was God in the flesh. 
Jesus was without sin, even though he was tempted. And remember, temptations are just the wrong things that are appealing to your fleshly nature, but go against God's nature. There's not a single man in history outside of Jesus who never, ever sinned even once. He is on common ground with us in facing temptation, but he is greater in that he never failed. He never gave in. And he conquered death, hell, and the grave. Jesus did die, just like everyone. But he was busy in his death. Unlike us, he was God and had all power. And he was able to walk straight to hell, take those keys from Satan, and raise back to life. And Satan had no authority, no power to stop him. And what I love, I just love, it's like a smack in the face of the devil to me. He folded his death clothes on his grave and walked out. I, I just, I love that. I love thinking Jesus had a little bit of attitude with things like that. <laughs> but that's just a few quick examples on how, even though Jesus was a man, he was still greater. You can read the Gospels, you can read the book of Acts, and you can see all that was recorded. But get this, that's not even a fraction of what Jesus has done. Because you'll see one apostle pinned down. They, they, if they tried to write down everything Jesus did, there wouldn't be enough books in the world to hold it all. It's just another way of showing how great he is. You can pin down anybody else's lifetime accomplishments, but not Jesus. Jesus is more than just a story. And even though he experienced every part of being a man just like we do, he was more than just a man. He was God in the flesh. Why? Why would God make himself to be a man for 33 and a half years and face everything we do and bring himself so low? Is there a reason? Absolutely. He came to earth to take our place. And I'll give you just a little bit of history, maybe to help us better understand or help someone who maybe never heard. By choosing to disobey God, and eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge, Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve chose sin over God in that moment. They were warned about what would happen, but they gave in to the temptation to eat it. And ever since, every single person born has been born into sin, even today, which is why this book and the name of Jesus is still relevant to us today, so far removed, because we are still the same human condition. Being born into sin, it's impossible to get rid of it yourself. Mud does not wash away mud. It's just a fact. Sin cannot wash away sin. And even the sacrificial system God set in place in the Old Testament, it was only a temporary covering of a person's sin. But it did not wash it away. But God did know what he was doing. And at the right time, the perfect timing, he came down to earth. The sacrificial system was very, very specific. Part of it was needing a perfect animal with no faults, no flaws, for its blood to be any use in covering your sin. But the system only worked to cover, and there was no way to wash away sins except by the blood of a perfect man willing to bear the burden of sin and be the perfect acceptable sacrifice to God. But the only one truly perfect is God himself. And he made himself a body and became the son of God, a man who would be perfect even though tempted and weak, just like any other man, and who would willingly shed his blood to wash away the sins of humanity. 
We should be the ones dying in our sins. But Jesus stood in our place so that we might have life and we can see our sins washed away. When Jesus died on the cross, the temple veil that separated the presence of God from sin-covered humanity was ripped in half. That was no accident. That veil was thick. Thicker than we even realized. It was feet thick. Only the power of God could rip that in half like tissue paper. But with that ripped in half, suddenly humanity finds that because his blood washes away our sins, we are able to come into the presence of God. God robed himself in flesh to make a way for us to come to him. That is the reason why he came, to be to stand in our place, to be the sacrifice we could never be. And at the same time that Jesus shed his blood to wash away sins, he did tear the veil. He opened the way so everyone who would, could come and know him. What Jesus said as he died on that cross, it is finished. That was a statement of finality. The law of the Old Testament was fulfilled. It wasn't just thrown away. It was fulfilled in totality. Sin was now able to be washed away. And Satan's claim on humanity through sin was overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not say, I am finished. No, he said, it is finished. Because Jesus Christ is still alive and well. And the victory he provided in that moment for those people then is still the same victory he provides today for us here and now. That is the main reason Jesus came. But he also came and he taught. He reached the lost. He healed the sick. He showed us how to live and walk and talk. His eyes were ever on his final goal of the cross. But in the meantime of his life, he changed lives. And that's how we should be living. Our main goal is heaven. We have our eyes on the prize trying to get ourselves right. But in the meantime, our lives should be a light that will lead others to Christ as well. So what does Jesus do for us today? In our time and in this culture, because this is America, not the Middle East. And we are so far removed from the time and place that he lived. With all this technology and this being the 21st century, how does Jesus actually apply to our lives? I know most of you here already know. So I'm hoping I'm speaking to someone who may have never heard or maybe just needs to be reconvinced. We know Jesus made a difference in his time, but how does he make any difference now? Let me tell you some things. For one, Jesus gives us peace that passes understanding. Philippians 4 and 7. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. I've noticed in this generation, we are greatly burdened by anxiety, depression, stress, and fear. But Jesus really is the answer. That's not just some offhand comment that we Christians say. We say it because we've experienced it. It's why we can go through the same struggles in life as everyone else and still have our hearts full of joy and hope and peace. It's why we can still stand, even though everything is burning down all around us. It's not stubbornness. 
It's the peace that God gives. His assurance that he is there with us. And that he will make a way just like every other time. He made a way for countless people in the word. Over and over again. And this book isn't finished. He is still making a way. He is still making a difference in our lives today. The wisdom of God confuses the world because it goes against the wisdom of the world. And it seems so foolish. But it cannot be denied or argued. It's the same for his peace. The situation is still there. But without any medication, without any therapy, without any alcohol, without any type of drugs, his peace washes over his saints. It's a peace that chases away every demon from your mind that helps you breathe and realize everything's going to be all right and allows you to take the next step forward. That's just one thing. And if that sounds good, listen to what else he does. Jesus gave his example how to live right. Doesn't sound as good as peace, (laughs) but just bear with me. Taught us how to stand for truth even when you're hated for it. Today, we see that those who take a stand on truth usually face ridicule and persecution. He showed us by his example that we can take the heat and that his spirit, the Holy Ghost, will be our strength. After all, it's in our weakness that his strength is made perfect. It takes courage to stand for anything, especially when people are against you. But if Jesus can do it, facing everything just like we do, And if it's going to be his strength, the strength of God, shining through my weakness and my shaking knees and my my quaking voice, I know I too can live right and stand for truth in a messed up world. Jesus also offers forgiveness and grace for anyone who's feeling guilty. When his forgiveness washes over you, it just takes all that guilt and shame and washes that away. And he offers us forgiveness and grace when we fall short of his calling. He set a really high calling. He tells us to strive for the mark of perfection. We're going to fail at that every day. I fail every day. That's okay. That's exactly what grace is for. And it's so amazing. Because the more I experience his grace through my failures, the more I want to do better. I don't want to abuse his grace and live just however I want to, but it's comforting knowing his grace is there when I do fall. We live as perfectly as we can. And what Jesus did for us is that safety net, helping us to get back up when we fall. It's like having that spotter when you're lifting weights. The spotter doesn't actually do anything for you. You still have to lift the weight yourself. But they are there for the times that you just cannot do it by yourself. When you get just too tired or you just lose the strength. We get tired and we can't always walk perfect. We won't always walk perfect. Even the Apostle Paul, writer of most of the New Testament, he wrote about having to ask for forgiveness every single day. But thank God. Because Jesus steps in, and his grace helps us get back up again. His grace is like that spotter picking you up so that you can keep going. He also heals us. I developed a habit, I don't know when, it's been a long time now. Uh, If something starts to hurt, 
I just touch it and I say, heal it, Jesus. Or I'll just say, Jesus. Something really, really simple, short and sweet. But most of the time, it really does work. But at times where it doesn't work, or at least it doesn't work like I think it should, I find God gives me the strength to endure and to keep faith in him. But healing the physical body isn't the greatest healing God does. He heals our spirits. He mends our broken hearts. He breathes life into the hopeless. He's a healer of the things that go on inside of our minds and our spirits, not just our bodies. Legion. Here's probably the worst case ever seen in the history of ever as far as being tormented in his body, mind, and spirit. But with just a word, Jesus healed him to the uttermost all the way. The presence and the word of Christ was enough to heal a man of self-harm, mental torment, demonic possession, hopelessness, and fear. It even took care of the physical side. He was naked. And then because he was put in his right mind, Jesus provided clothes for him too, made sure he was clothed. There is no type of sickness that Jesus is unable or unwilling to heal. Even today, because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yes, even your sickness. I know you've already decided it's not for me. Why do you think you're some special exception? Do you really think on the cross, Jesus was bearing the sin of every person to ever live, except you specifically? What makes you think that if he cares enough to carry your burden of sin, to bleed for you, to take the beating for you, to take your place, he wouldn't care enough to heal you or move in your life? Don't count yourself out of his healing just yet, just because you don't see it, or it's not how you think it should be. Let's say you do have faith for healing, but it seems to elude you. Consider this. There are marathon runners with missing legs. Maybe in a sense that's going to apply to your ailment, to what you're going through, God is calling you to be like that. It's those marathon runners that really inspire others to greatness. If your healing seems delayed, go ahead and run your marathon and see others led to Christ and do greater things than they ever thought possible because of your faithfulness. Jesus does answer prayer. A few examples found in the Bible, a centurion had a sick servant. Parents had sick children. A woman had an issue of blood. There were blind men, lame men. Water was turned into wine. Money for taxes was provided for a fish's mouth. There was provision in drought. And the barren womb saw children. All these needs were met. And the list goes on and on and on. And read your Bible. You'll find more and more and more. What I love, though, is that these were prayer needs of normal people experiencing the same things in life we face. Even today, though it was a different time and culture, they were still people living life. Same as us. They faced sickness, money problems, crippled limbs, death. They prayed for it. They also prayed for forgiveness, help in a situation, for wisdom and direction, for rain, and even the little things. Jesus provided wine in order to help a newlywed couple save face during the wedding. There was no great need for that. It just helped their public image. 
in the grand scheme of things, not very important. But it shows that he does care about the things in your life. Jesus says we have not because we ask not. So maybe instead of just hoping something turns out well, we can pray about it. Instead of sending good vibes or good thoughts someone's way, tell them, I'll be praying for you. Jesus also chases away fear. Jesus is still the only name in which we pray. Jesus is the only name by which we are saved. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If you're wondering if Jesus or the Bible so has importance for us today in America in the 21st century, the answer is yes. All the good he did 2,000 years ago is still the same good he will do and does do in our lives today. If our musicians can go ahead and come. Here is why I titled this sermon, No Other Name. We'll go to Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 12. If you could go ahead and stand up. Acts 4 and 10. Be it known unto you all, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at night of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. In the name of Jesus, we find our prayers answered. In the name of Jesus, we find salvation. There is no other name which causes hell to tremble. There is no other name so wonderful. Because there is no one else like Jesus. Jesus touches, loves, heals, holds, strengthens, and impacts like no one else. And we find that in the times when we are just too overwhelmed, that his name alone, by itself, is a, enough of a praise and a prayer. Jesus loves you. It almost sounds like some lame hippie talk to ignore with how much it's said. And how little people understand how true that statement actually is. In our first world culture that has been largely Christian for its entire history, we are in danger of losing just how much the name of Jesus truly means because of how casually it's tossed around. But when you call on that name, you are calling on God. And you are calling on all the work that was done on that cross. The gates of hell cannot prevail against the name of Jesus. And it's time we start living and talking like we believe it. This world needs to see it. Our family and our friends need to hear it. It's up to us to show them just what that name can do. This altar is open tonight. If you'll just go ahead and come and make your way to the altar. And call on the name of Jesus. That name like no other name. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you, and have a blessed day.